Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. This episode features a sermon Will Messenger preached at Reservoir Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The sermon is entitled, How to Get People at Work to Dislike You and Trust You. Will Messenger is the executive editor of the Theology of Work project. Well, thanks, Steve. I really appreciate it, and I'm honored to be asked to speak here. Uh, this is the second sermon in a series about the parables. Steve introduced the topic last week. <clears throat> parables, Jesus told these 45 stories, which we call parables, uh, that in one sense are just straightforward stories, but in another sense, you know, are full of meaning in different ways. And so this is the second in the series, and it's a parable that's called, usually called the parable of the two sons. And it's the first Bible passage in your bulletin insert. And the title of this sermon is, How to Get People at Work to Dislike You and Trust You. Possibly the dumbest sermon title I have ever come up with. And uh, I asked my daughters after the first service if they agreed with that, and they said yes, that is the dumbest sermon title you have ever come up with. Uh, because who could possibly have come here thinking, I hope this guy tells me how to get people to dislike me more at work. That's the main thing I need from church today. But something about this parable that Jesus told kept bringing me back to this title, or maybe my experience kept bringing me back to this title. So I'll just give the talk, and at the end you can decide whether you agree with me how dumb the title is. Let's start by reading the parable. And this is, uh, uh, as I say, the first, um, uh, the first passage on your insert. Jesus said, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Well, I notice this parable happens in a workplace, a family business, a vineyard owned and operated by a father and his two sons. And even though they seem to be, even though they're related to each other, there seems to be some kind of tension here uh, because neither son wants to go work. The boss, who's the father, tells them both to go work, and the first son obviously doesn't want to because he says, I will not. And the second son says he will, but he obviously doesn't want to either because then he doesn't actually do the work. And so Jesus asked them, which of the two, in this difficult situation, which of the two did the work of his father? And the people listening to Jesus tell this parable say, the first. And Jesus seems to agree with them. So, the meaning of the parable seems to be, it's not what you say that matters, but what you do. The first son says the wrong thing, but he does the right thing. And the second son says the right thing, but he does the wrong thing. Which of them did the will of his father? The first, the one who did the right thing. It's what you do that counts, not what you say. I really like this meaning. I'm a doer. Accomplishing things means more to me than talking about things. Now, I'm not claiming that I'm a successful doer. 
Actually, I'm a huge procrastinator, and I'm also pretty lazy. I'm not claiming to be a productive doer or a diligent doer. I just mean that actions and doing things is more important to me than talking or being. So I love a parable that means what you do is more important than what you say. And I think the people that Jesus told this parable to also understood that to be its meaning. I mean, they agree with Jesus. And it seems like he's saying to them, you claim to be doing the will of our Father, of God, but you're not really. And so he's kind of telling this as a complaint against them. And actually, in this um, setting in the 21st chapter of Matthew, it's kind of part of an extended series of arguments that Jesus is having with the religious leaders of his day. Uh, So even in its own setting, I think it had the same meaning. What you do is more important than what you say. Uh, I'm not going to say much more about the meaning that it had to the people who first heard it, because we're in a different time and context now. Instead, I'd like to talk about what it could mean for us today. Uh, Now, as Steve mentioned, I'm leading an organization uh, called Theology of Work Project, and we have an online commentary covering what the Bible says about work. So we've tried to cover every passage in the Bible that has some application to ordinary work, non-church work. And as it happens, we have an entry on the uh, the parable of the two sons. And it says pretty much what I've just said, minus the part about me being lazy. And you could go there uh, right now if you have your device uh, with this tiny URL. We'll take you right to uh, uh, this, this parable, tinyurl.com slash T-W-O-S-O-N-S. We'll take you right to what we had to say about this parable. And we have a, uh, a feature on our website that you can comment. You can leave comments for us. And this parable has been on there for three or four years. And until four days ago, nobody had ever left left us a comment. But in the last four days, four people left us comments. Uh, And a guy from Los Angeles left us this comment yesterday. I'm a big fan of the parable of the two sons because it really makes it easy to differentiate between people who are talkers and people who are doers. The people who keep a low profile with what they say but have an impressive reputation for what they do, they have all of my respect and admiration. As we look to differentiate ourselves from the fallen and to represent our Lord, we should strive to be people of commitment and action. All right, dude, yes, it's what you do that says, not, and that matters, not what you say. Now, let me be clear. I'm not putting down anyone whose experience of faith is different. Uh, if anyone's experience of faith is oriented more towards words or singing or praising God uh, or just being quiet, listening for the still, small voice of God or contemplation. I'm not against that. Uh, And God bless you. But for me, I just have a different kind of psychological makeup, I guess. And you can see why, for me, a parable that says it's not what you do, it's not what you say that counts, it's what you do, you can see why that, uh, yeah, I'd like that parable. And I know I'm not the only person who values actions more than words. And actually, the person in our organization who's in charge of the website is a member of this congregation. And she's a lot like the son in the, in the, par- the first son in the parable of the two sons. Not that she refuses to do her work, but she never overstates what she's about to do. So I'll try to get her to, you know, to kind of 
inflate or to make big goals or to be a big talker about it. I'll press her to talk something like, hey, let's make it a goal to triple our website traffic this year. And she'll reply, you know, really honestly, well, you know, I'm not sure that we can triple it, really, if you look at the factors that make up why people come to our site. So she won't do the big talk, but then she'll go out and find 10 or 20 or maybe even more ways that I don't know about to drive web traffic. Uh, And actually, since she joined the Theology of Work project, our web traffic has gone from 3,000 a month to 300,000 a month, actually 320,000 last month. Um, So so she really has been a great doer, and that's the kind of person that I would like to be, the kind of person that I'd like to be on a team with. All right, so the parable of the two sons, it's what you do that counts, not what you say. I, I think I've covered this point pretty thoroughly. I mean, I know this would be a short sermon, but we could kind of end here. Except, except there might be a few reasons to believe that this interpretation might not be everything that Jesus meant for this parable. First off, there's the second passage in your bulletin insert. Uh, that's Matthew 5, 33 through 37, and especially the last verse, 37. It says, let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Let your word be yes or no, and he explains why he doesn't like uh, sort of uh, embellishing on that. And that makes it sound to me like Jesus actually cares about what you say, too. So it's not just what you do, it's also what you say. And then there's the next passage, which is often called the parable of the prodigal son. Another one of the 45 parables that Jesus told. Now, it's, it's a lot longer than the parable of the two sons. Too long to read out loud now, but a, a lot of you probably know it anyway. And in that parable, well, it's sort of, it's sort of, it's sort of parallel to the parable of the two sons, except reverse or inverse or converse or something. The parable of the two sons... The first son says no, but does yes. And the second son says yes, but does no. In the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son says no and does no. And the older son says yes and does yes. Now, in the two sons, you know, I would say my interpretation was that it was the son who did the right thing who was right who did the will of his father. But in the parable of the prodigal son, the hero is the son who says no and does no. So that kind of casts doubt on the idea that God only cares about what you do and not what you say. Well, last week, Steve said that the reason Jesus taught in parables and and the reason they're a bit mysterious might be because Jesus wants you to question them. Maybe Jesus isn't looking for one interpretation, one moral of the story. Instead, he said, practice the secret of the parables. So maybe there's more than one meaning. And he had a great idea. Maybe the parables are meant to drive you to ask questions and bring your questions to Jesus. So what questions does this parable make you ask? Well, I heard someone once ask a question about the parable of the two sons, and that was Andy Crouch, who's a super smart guy who's written a bunch of books, 
and I brought his newest one with me, The Strong and the Weak. Uh, he wrote um, Culture Making and uh, that one about power. No, I can't remember the name. Anyway, this was back before he was a super smart guy with lots of books. Back then he was just a super smart guy. And the question he asked was, when? When did the first son begin to do the will of the Father? Right, the first son was the one who did the will of his father. Jesus and the listeners agree on that. But when did he first begin to do his father's will? Was it when he changed his mind and went to work in the vineyard? Or could it have been right when he told his father, I will not? That's the question Andy asked. Is it possible that the first son was already doing the will of his father when he said, I will not go? If so, the difference between the two sons begins as soon as they answer their father. The first son answers his father truthfully. He does not intend to go to work in the field, and he tells his father that. Not so with the second son. The second son says what his father wants to hear. I go, sir. But it's a lie. He has no more intention of going to work in the vineyard than the first son has. Could it be that by telling the truth, even though the truth was disobedient, the first son was already doing his father's will? Put yourself in the father's shoes. Which is more important to you, that your son tell you the truth or that he obey what you ask him to do? I mean, I'm a father with two daughters. That's part of the work I do. And by the way, when I talk about work, I don't just mean paid jobs. I mean all the kinds of work you do, including raising children. So this is kind of poignant for me when I think about my daughters. I mean, if I imagine one of them were, let's say, having difficulty at college and you know, is even thinking about dropping out or changing schools or something. You know, now she, they know I want them to graduate, but would I rather that my daughter come to me and say, look, I'm, I'm not happy, things aren't working out, I'm even thinking of dropping out. Would I rather have her tell me that? Or whether, would I rather have her kind of grind it out until finally she gives up? I'd rather have her tell me the truth. Telling the truth puts you in a real relationship. As long as you're lying to someone, you cannot be in a real relationship with them because you're not bringing the real you into the relationship. You're bringing some kind of fake you. So by telling his father the truth, I'm not going to do what you asked, the first son puts himself in a real relationship with his father. It's a relationship of disobedience, but it's a real relationship of disobedience. And a true relationship is even more important than getting stuff done. I can't believe I'm saying that. <laughs> a true relationship is more important than getting stuff done. Now, if the first son did the will of his father by telling his father the truth that his father didn't want to hear, that changes the meaning of this parable, doesn't it? Now it means something more like tell the truth about yourself, even if it's something the other person doesn't want to hear. This is a much harder meaning for me than my original interpretation. First off, I do not like telling the truth about myself if I think it might damage my ability to get stuff done. I'm a doer. I measure my self-worth by what I accomplish. So I try to manage your perception of me in whatever way I think will make it possible for me to get more stuff done. 
So if I tell you something about myself that I think you're not going to like, right, that could, that could jeopardize my ability to keep accomplishing stuff, right? You might stop giving me access to your resources. You might stop helping me. You might even stand in my way. You might not introduce me to the people that I want you to introduce me to because they can help me. So, well, I would really not rather tell you something that could cause you to dislike me. Well, while I'm dithering about whether I can be honest with people about myself, why don't I introduce a person who actually has told something to someone that they didn't want to hear? So I'm going to ask Tisha Wynn to come up and have a little conversation with Tisha. Thanks so much. Let's come up here. But I'm going to give you, give you this one. Uh, so maybe I should just start by asking you, uh, t- I, we talked earlier in the week, and Tisha told me this story, and I asked if I could interview her here on stage. Why don't you tell us the situation? Sure. Good morning. Good morning. In one of my professional positions, I had a vacancy, and I asked one of the members of that team to temporarily fill in that vacancy by serving as an interim. As time went on, it became evident that that person was not a good fit for that position. And as a result, I opened the position to be permanently filled. When the position was opened the first time, (laughs) that person was the only person that applied. And as a result, thought that she was going to get the job. So that was my difficult conversation, number one, explaining that just because you applied, you're the only one that applied, that does not mean I can give you the job. I'm going to leave it open for a while longer. So I left it open, and I got a good rule of candidates to apply. And during the interview process, it became clear that one of those candidates was going to be a better fit. When I made my decision that this candidate was going to be a better fit, before announcing it publicly to my entire team, I had a private meeting with this person who was serving as an interim and discussed why I am going to select another person for the role. And I selected another person for the role. <laughs> so let me see if I got this right. You, you knew that the person who was filling the role as an interim, uh, was, you had decided she was not the re- best fit for the job permanently. Yep. And so like before anybody else knew that, you went to her and told her, I'm, I'm planning to choose somebody else. Yes. That sounds scary to me. <laughs> what did it feel like to do that? Well, yes. It was indeed scary because this person and I were actually pretty good friends. So it was scary because I was wondering, oh my, I may lose my friend. Um, I also thought about retaliation. This person can make my life really difficult Mm -hmm. by talking to the other members of my team when she becomes unhappy. So what will happen then? Uh, So what did happen then? Um, she's no longer my friend. She stopped talking to me. So your fear was she would dislike you and she did yes. dislike you. Yes. 
And did you ever, like, recover your friendship or anything? No. Well, it really sounds like you could give a talk <laughs> about how to make people dislike you at work. Yeah, I seem to be pretty good at that. <laughs> um, so, like, there's no happy ending to this story. Do you regret? Yeah, so I wouldn't say there is no happy ending to the story. I don't have any regrets because based on the data and the evidence before me, I feel and I know that I made the best decision. And I was honest with myself. And I even said that to this person. I said, you know what? I would prefer that you not talk to me ever again than I put you in a position where I would not be setting you up for success. I would feel really hurt about you failing in a position that I know you're not ready for. So I would prefer that you choose not to talk to me than the latter. And she chose not to talk to me. <laughs> well, thanks, Tisha. I really appreciate hearing your story. You're welcome. Wow. So. Tisha knew she was going to, she was choosing to do something. She was going to lay this, or uh, not, not give this person a promotion. And she knew that this person wouldn't like it. So she went to this person and told her directly about her own decision, Tisha's decision, even though she knew it might make the person dislike her. And it did make the person dislike her. But the thing I really loved when Tisha told me this story earlier this week, she said, I have no regrets. Even though it did turn out to cause this person to dislike me, I have no regrets. And this brings us to point number two in your insert. I wonder whether you have ever told anyone something about yourself or about something you're planning to do that they wouldn't like. And if so, looking back, do you regret it or do you have no regrets? Have you ever told something some, someone, something about yourself that they would not like or something about what you are choosing, going to choose to do that they would not like? And if so, do you have any regrets? Now, Tisha's story gives me some ideas for dares, for becoming more honest about yourself at work. And that's point number three. So uh, I dare you to try one of these things during the next week, uh, wherever it is you do your work, and see if they help bring Jesus' parable into your life. See whether they bring God's presence into the place that you do this work, or whether maybe they make you more alive to God's presence. Ready? Here's dare A. Tell someone something about you that you know they won't like. Now, I make it about you, not about them. So I, I'm not suggesting, I'm not daring you to go complain to people and you know, tell them everything you don't like about them. Make it about yourself. I mean, Tisha's story was she took responsibility. I'm making this decision, and here's what I'm going to do. And then use their response as a way to figure out how to become more trustworthy to them. Now, I could have used a dare like this a few years ago. I was part of this tiny startup company that had developed a new treatment for diabetes, and we had run a very small clinical study, clinical trial, to see whether it worked. About a dozen patients had gone had used this procedure, this therapy, uh, and they had had dramatic improvements. But that was too small of a study to be statistically significant. 
So we started a longer, larger study that would have about 100 patients in it to, you know, to prove statistically significantly that this therapy worked. And about six months before this new, longer study was expected to end, I hired a salesperson. And I had him go out and begin talking to doctors, develop relationships, kind of talk about where the study was going so that when it finished and we had proof, he could begin asking them to prescribe it for their patients. Uh, and it worked great. He was ter terrific at making relationships with doctors, and he had a lot of, in only six months, a lot of people he got us kind of positioned in front of. Then we got the results of the bigger study, and they were negative. The study did not demonstrate that this treatment was more effective. So suddenly I had a no product, I had a salesman and no product. So I knew I had to lay him off. There's nothing to sell. I figured he wouldn't like that, and I thought he wouldn't like me. So I put it off for a week, and then I put it off for another week, and then another week, kind of hemming and hawing and planning what I might say and how I could let him down easy. I started avoiding him at the office, of course, or if I did see him, I would just say hi and then hurry past like I had something important to do. While I was procrastinating, the company was running out of money. Finally, I had to lay him off just because we wouldn't be able to pay him. And putting off the bad news just made me feel worse. So finally, I did it. I called him into my office and I said, Tony, um, look, you've been doing a great job around here. I'm impressed with how many doctors you've already been in contact with. And, uh, um, so look, it's not about your performance or anything like that, uh, but, um, well, look, things around here haven't really turned out. Stop! Hold on, wait a minute, he said. Look at you. You're, you're so nervous, he said. You're sweating and you can hardly talk. Relax. All you're doing is firing me. <laughs> he knew the truth, even though I didn't have the courage to tell him. Even though I'd been trying to hide it from him, he knew, of course, that he couldn't continue to have a job where there was no product to sell. So he helped me lay himself off. I mean, I was really lucky that he did that. Um, it turned out okay, and it turned out okay for him, by the way, because he immediately got another job with a company that did have a product and made a lot of commissions. Uh, so it turned out okay, but not really, not really good performance on my part. I mean, for one thing, I wonder if he could ever trust me again. We haven't worked together since then, but by trying to hide the truth from him, I really wasn't very trustworthy. I could have used someone to dare me to tell him the truth and to be honest with him, for God's sake. Okay, let's move on to dare B. Make a list of every time someone is surprised by something you do at work. So the way you would do this is, I don't know, keep a notebook or, you know, on your PDA or whatever, but just notice when someone seems surprised by something you do at work and write it down. Do that for a week or a month. And the idea here is that if you're honest about yourself, people probably wouldn't be surprised very often by what you do. This reminds me of when I was a senior in college. And that year I spent most of my time in the research lab of one of my professors, Dr. Arthur Benade. And I was doing guided research under him. I was really grateful for him. You know, he mentored me. 
He really taught me how to be a scientist rather than how to just learn science as a student. He invested a ton of time in teaching me techniques and helping me you know, go from application to writing the paper. We wrote a paper together. So I was really grateful to him. And that's why I really did not want to tell him that I was deciding not to go on and do a PhD with him like we expected, but to graduate and go get a job. So I didn't tell him any of that until finally about February he said, hey, you, you got, it's time to, get your your, time to get your application in. You know, you got to get that application in so we can admit you to the PhD program. And that's when I finally had to tell him, actually, I've decided not to apply to the PhD program. I've decided to go get a job in the industry instead. And I remember the look on his face. It was like this look of shock and sadness, dismay, you know, even kind of betrayal. It haunts me to this day. I mean, what if instead of that, what if I had, you know, told him earlier what I was thinking? I mean, he said to me, well, would you like to talk about this? You know, I could maybe help you think about your career options. You know, if you want to go to industry, that's okay. But I said, well, no, not really. I've already made my decision. So I didn't even give him a chance to be part of this decision process after he'd poured so much into me. You know, I regret that. I regret that instead of being honest with him bit by bit through with my thinking, I just waited and dropped this bomb on him. You know, what an ugly surprise. Byron Rushing is a representative in the Massachusetts State House of Representatives and a Christian believer. He told me another story about trust. He said, the only way a legislature can work is if the members trust one another. I was surprised to hear him say that because, you know, like, do we think of legislatures as being high-trust organizations? And he said, well, I don't mean that we trust one another's political judgment or we agree with one another. In fact, he was, he's a pretty, pretty liberal uh, member of the legislature, even, you know, even by democratic standards. And so he finds himself at odds often with other members of the legislature, even his own party. So he said, I'm not talking about trusting each other and agreeing with each other's policy positions, but you have to be trustworthy about how you're going to vote. If you ask me whether I will vote yes or no on a piece of legislation, I have to tell you the truth, even if I know you don't like it. Even if you're pressuring me to vote yes, if I know I'm going to vote no, I have to tell you that. Otherwise, we can never get any work done. The reason the legislature works is not because we're all working together towards a common good or because we all agree, because we all like each other. It works because we keep our word. So that brings me to dare see. Do something good for someone that they would never expect. Okay, now I realize this is in direct contradiction to what I just said about not surprising anybody, right? So that's the thing about parables. They can't neatly tie them up with just one idea. The idea here is, if you surprise somebody with something good every once in a while, maybe that's not such a bad thing. And my inspiration for this comes from the first son in the parable of the two sons. After telling his father no, he changes his mind and goes to work in the field or the vineyard. Now, maybe he had to say no just to establish some good boundaries. I mean, when I think about workplaces that I've been in, there always seems to be someone who wants you to do their work for them, 
right? They want you to take care of the next customer, or they want you to take, take a phone call when it's their turn, or whatever it might be. And so just saying yes all the time, that doesn't really work. So maybe that's what's happening in this parable. Maybe the son is saying no, because his father's been asking him and his brother to do all the work. And he's just saying, no, you've got to do some of the work here too. I, I don't know. I mean, this parable is very short. But after the other person starts doing the work, maybe there's an opportunity to go help them. Right? Once you've established the proper boundaries by saying no, maybe the surprise could be by helping, not doing the work for them, but helping them. Certainly it would have been better for me in many situations to say no and then be ready to help rather than to be squishy and wishy-washy all the time. Anyway, I, I dare you. Think of something where people would be surprised, someone you unit work with who would be surprised to get help from you and see if they'd like some help or a relationship. Now, before we can go on to the fourth dare, I have one more question to ask of this parable. What does all the stuff about tax collectors and prostitutes mean? Go back to the parable, the text of the parable at the top of the insert, because at the beginning I only read the first two verses. Here's the rest. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. What are tax collectors and prostitutes doing in this parable? Now, I know that it's an original setting. He was in this argument with the, with the religious leaders, and so he has some kind of comparison going on that's trying to make a point with them. But I notice in our modern context that these are occupations. Tax collector and prostitute are both occupations. And that reinforces my idea that this parable has something to say to us in our workplaces today. And the thing about these two occupations is that they both had bad reputations. Maybe Jesus mentions them because they're two professions where you can't hide who you really are. If you're dealing with a tax collector or a prostitute, you know exactly who you're dealing with. Tax collectors collaborated with the hated Roman government. Right? So they were the ones who extracted taxes from the Jewish populace, usually corruptly, and turned it over to the Roman authorities, and that paid for the legions that kept Israel under Rome's thumb. In other words, they were traitors. Prostitutes were not that bad, but they did make their money by men violating the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. So when you dealt with a tax collector or a prostitute, you were under no illusions about who you were dealing with. Sort of like the first son when he says to the father, I will not go. He puts it all out there for his father to see. And this brings us to dare D. I wonder whether Jesus would dare you and me to seek out people at work who have a bad reputation and try to get into relationships with them. Most people try to avoid relationships with the people who have bad reputations. So, it ought to be easy to get into a relationship with them because they have nothing to hide. Everybody knows about their bad reputation already. And if you're willing to be honest about yourself, they're already, everybody already knows about them. This reminds me that I was in a situation that I was in 
a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And I can't give much detail about this because I wouldn't want to tag somebody else recognizable to say that I think they have a bad reputation, uh, even though I'm sure nobody in this church you know, knows who this person was or even where this occurred. But in the, in the place where I worked with this guy, uh, he had already had a reputation for being hard to work with and opinionated uh, and a bit of a know-it-all, kind of a blowhard. So I used to try to avoid him. I didn't want to be told what to do, and it's like, stay away as far, far away from him as I can. But it was a fairly small work group, and so I did keep having to encounter him and listen to him. And after a while, I recognized that he had lots of experiences that I didn't have. That's why he had a bad reputation. And he had some sort of odd angled points of view. And both of those gave him a perspective on things that I didn't have. Every once in a while, he'd say something or make an insight that I would never have gotten and that turned out to be true. And the other thing is, he was totally, 100% honest with you about where you stood. I always knew how he felt about me, and I always felt I could trust him. Even if I didn't really like him, I could trust him. And to tell you the truth, I never got over that feeling that he kind of bugged me. So a little bit like Tisha, it wasn't like this had a happy ending, like we became best friends forever. But I did start paying more attention to his wacko opinions and his know-it-all attitude. And it helped me a lot. And I began to think Jesus could be right. right? Maybe this guy is actually going into the kingdom of God far ahead of anywhere I'll ever be. Well, there you have it. Two possible interpretations of the parable of the two sons. Number one, it's what you do that counts, not what you say. And number two, be honest about yourself to the people you work with. Maybe neither one is the right interpretation, or maybe they both are, or maybe there's not a right interpretation, but Jesus is inviting us to push back with our questions. And I wonder what questions you have about this parable. At the very least, I hope that by giving you these four dares, I have actually given you some practical ideas for how to get people at work to dislike you <laughs> and maybe trust you more. Would you pray with me? God, I'm thankful for these parables of Jesus, and I'm, I'm thankful that um, Steve, you know, opened them up for us these, this, during this series to, um, to bring our questions to them. Thank you for starting this parable with a question and drawing us to you to, to ask you more about what you mean and where you are with us uh, everywhere we are in our life and work. So I, I ask you that you would put into our hearts in the moment as we go through this week, you know, ways, dares, ideas for how might, we might really come alive and you might come alive to us through these parables in our daily life and work. In Jesus' name. Amen. For more information, visit us at theologyofwork.org, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at Theo Work Project.